0: Well, welcome to The Pond. I'm your host, Vincent Walden, coming to you on the Compliance Podcast Network. With me today, I'm happy to have Brian Judas, who's with Panasonic Avionics, and he's Senior Director of the Office of Ethics and Compliance. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Vince. Pleasure to be here. So glad to have you on the show. And before we get started, I'll put a little bit of philosophy in the mix. And, uh, you know, given your background and some of the cool things that you've done and changes, of course, as I thought this one might be appropriate from Thoreau. Think about this, audience. Many men go fishing all their lives without knowing that it's not fish they are after. <laughs> deep thoughts there by Thoreau.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it makes me sort of wonder, you know, first of all, great to be part of the podcast. Do you have fans of early, are there Waldenites or Walden Ponders of some sort? Because you kind of could do a deep thought Saturday Night Live sort of approach to this as well.
0: We have a conference, just kind of like the Disney following of characters. Uh, no, no, I'm like just it. kidding. No,
1: no, but I mean, I, I think the code is one I think that fits in all facets of life, especially from a professional one. And you know, you're going to ask me about my background most likely, but I'll tell you that most of my thoughts growing up, even as an adult, were to be an athlete. And most of my life was spent sort of preparing for that. But then I'm now in a position where I'm doing nothing related to athletics and more about data. So you never know where that's going to take you. So I was definitely going to a pond for a different purpose, but here I am now.
0: But uh, yeah, but now you're you are ultimately after data, my friend.
1: This is correct. <laughs> that's Very right. correct.
0: It's served you well, which is my passion. So, well, let's jump in then. I mean, tell us about your background and how you got to be at your current role at Panasonic
1: Avionics. Yeah. So as I sort of alluded to, never really was even top of mind or even a thought that I would be where I am. So I, I was an athlete, as I mentioned earlier. I did go to college after turning down an opportunity after being drafted to play Major League Baseball at high school. I went to college at Fresno State. I played baseball there. I then did leave Fresno State early to go play professional baseball in the Kansas City Royals organization. So Major League Baseball, which I would call professional bus riding for the most part. (laughs) And then after a brief stint there playing baseball, went back to undergrad, had a few classes left, finished that, and then decided to go to USC where I got my MBA. Hey, fight on. That's my alumni go Trojans, right? And so when I got to SC, you know, essentially, you know, business school at that time, they, were, they had transitioned the program, we're trying to make it sort of one of the top tier schools in the country, which is difficult, as I'm sure you're aware. And it was really a two-year journey of networking, job searching, to be honest, working very hard to meet new people, do informational interviews with companies and just figure out what in the world am I going to do after I'm no longer going to try to be an athlete. So that put me in front of a lot of really, really interesting people with interesting ideas on sort of what was going on. And I ultimately ended up meeting someone that worked for Pricewaterhouse in what they called their disputes practice, telling me about his job was doing eight or nine different things from bankruptcy work to valuations, to investigations, to real estate matters, to insurance. And I was like, that sounds like something that's good for me. I don't know what I want to do. I get a lot of opportunity. I think I could do that. So I ultimately started my career at Pricewaterhouse that then became Coopers after the merger with Price and Coopers & Libran. And my entire career was really centered around data. And I guess I would say initially it's data analysis. The the words forensic analysis or forensic data analysis really didn't pop up early in my career. And most of that was focused really on issues around either regulatory issues, whether it was a specific investigation I was doing for the SEC, an internal investigation for a company on some matter that was resulting in the need for an expert witness where I served as an expert witness and also helped other partners that I worked with at PwC to be experts. And in those cases, you have to basically scour through tomes and tomes of data, and at that time, not terabytes, but more like gigabytes of data. But the idea was to understand it, to be able to identify trends and outliers. And that sort of approach shaped everything that I did going forward, forward from very small data sets to extremely large data sets, whether it was securitization modeling for large scale water flows for movies, TV, big studios, trying to, you know, get cash for future film sites. And I really didn't get into anything sort of what I would call consistent with compliance until you really started dealing with the remediation aspects of investigations with the SEC initially in my career. Hmm. It wasn't until I got involved with a portion of the Siemens matter where I truly saw what the entirety of a compliance investigation would look like, especially the parts that result in proactive compliance, the need for data, the need for the analytics to help you identify the information and where those risks may lie. And that sort of propelled me through most of my career at PwC. You know, fast forward to you know, a few years ago, I had met the former chief compliance officer at Panasonic Avionics and knew that they were in the throngs of an SEC and DOJ investigation. And they were looking for help on a lot of different things to help build their program. And he asked me to come and talk to them about some of the things that we could do at PwC, the first of which was third-party due diligence. So we've had some conversations on what they were trying to accomplish, what types of specific tools and applications we could help them build, but also thinking more specifically about what they really wanted to accomplish in terms of identifying those third parties that they may think they had risk around. And then we also had a team of my colleagues at PwC that were also working with Panasonic Corporation to try to have a more broader view of what was going on at Panasonic. And they ended up getting traction pretty quickly. And we made a decision as an, as an organization to stop the effort of Panasonic Avionics and to focus on the parent company instead. And so we were sort of told to stand down. The Panasonic Avionics sort of kept asking if I wanted to sort of continue helping. And I was like, well, sure. They're like, we mean it in a different way. So we started the discussion about how I could help them. And then I soon realized they were basically asking me to come on board to help them through what was going to be the DOJ monitorship. And yeah. so I joined Panasonic Avionics in February of 2018. Monitorship officially started after the settlement announcements in April of 2018. Monitor first came on in September. And from there, that's how my journey started.
0: Wow, what a journey. And yeah, you had quite a run at, at PwC. It was over a decade, right?
1: I actually just escaped prior to two decades, almost 20 years at PwC. Yeah,
0: yeah. Woo. wow. Well, you've seen a lot of technology tools being deployed. Can can you talk to the audience about what compliance processes are best suited for analytics that you've seen and how they work and how effective have they been?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think we've both seen a lot in the timelines that we're talking about here in terms of, you know, initially very sort of rudimentary, sometimes off the shelf and, you know, being a customer serving consultant where you basically try to do whatever they want. Sometimes you customize, sometimes you help them buy something and then do the best they can with what's available. Yeah. So I think when you talk about specific processes, especially if you're just starting out, you want stuff that's pretty discrete. You want something that's available. You need something where it's you know, clean data as best you know it, but you also want to have a good sense for the information you're trying to look into. And you want something that doesn't have a lot of different t- touch points or the d- data is dispersed across a bunch of different systems. You want something that's self-contained. So I think if you talk about things like travel, and entertainment, gifts and hospitality, very singular compliance initiatives that are based on your policies or procedures that have many thresholds, things like that. Those types of things are very easy to digest, to pull apart and to be able to, to think about how you would visualize and then try to create analytics to help you identify where those things are that look like risks that you see as part of your program. And I think that's the way most companies sort of take that process and run forward.
0: I love the threshold, but your point on, no. you know, taking your policies, reading through them again and saying, what are the thresholds that we have? And how do we know that they're actually working, that they're within those thresholds? And that was something I wanted to hone in on. So
1: I think that's great. And this should be an active discussion because I think we've both done this long enough and there's so many different nuances to the way we see data and how it gets used that it's important to understand some of those differentiations along that path. But that's an important one. A lot of companies set these thresholds. Some cases, you know, very directly because they're looking at global regulatory requirements for countries, trying to be very specific to make sure they give guidance. But then there's always fuzziness around whether or not you can actually rely on those regulations or whether you should set some other threshold to use. What companies usually find out when they try to go down the data analytics path is that the thresholds they set, either one, are being manipulated by their teams, or two, are grossly out of line with what the actual norm is that they should be allowing. And so that's part of the sort of the joy and the journey of data is that it helps you understand whether or not you should be doing what you're doing or helping you to realize what's a better approach to identify what that right risk appetite is for your company.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, I'm curious, switching gears from your your monitorship perspective and the experiences that you've seen over the years, what business processes have you seen kind of work effectively for monitorships in today's kind of landscape? Or what can companies do better?
1: I mean, I think it's sort of the age-old story in the sense that, you know, the business processes that are focused on are a lot of the ones that we hear about either through reading the Wall Street Journal or other sort of publications around, you know, the things that people do wrong in investigations. And I think the same considerations that we have from monitorship apply to regular investigations, especially ones that involve the DOJ, in the sense that is if you're in an active investigation with the DOJ, you're directly addressing those issues that were identified. When you make it to a monitorship, it's not because you did something good to get there. Obviously, you were not able to demonstrate that you had the proper controls in place or the overarching compliance foundation and effective program in place to demonstrate to the government that you could actually identify these issues through your regular process. And so in that sense, those business processes often rely on what the underlying components were of those factors or things that were identified during the investigations, processes like Third party due diligence or TPRM, third party right. risk management. Yep. That usually is one of the biggest ones. As you know, third parties essentially pop up in almost 90 plus percent of all the investigations that happen out there. In monitorships, however, you don't get a pass for other components of things that weren't necessarily identified as part of your investigation. They're truly taking a holistic view at your compliance program. So the processes that you focus on literally are everything from as simple as the clarity of your policies to whether or not people have access to them, whether they physically look at them or not, whether they're digestible, meaning they're easy to follow, easy to understand, are there guides that you need? And then the biggest piece really under all of this is you could have all of components, but if you don't have underlying internal controls, and I mean strong internal controls, in some cases, they want ones where you have basically book-ended controls. You might have an initial approval process at the front end of of an existing transaction but you don't have a back-end control, they sort of want to make sure you can demonstrate that you can do these things and do them really well. And I think for our experience and for other companies that I've helped in these sorts of situations, the analytics are meant to be indicative of you being able to explain how you identified the risks in your organization. So traditional identification through risk assessment, what you then did to gather that information, was it reliable? Was it complete? Did it have everything that you needed? And then how did you determine what it is you wanted to be able to evaluate or to monitor as you move forward? And then what did you do to adjust? Huh. And those are the things that we were able to sort of demonstrate by building out some dashboards and with other clients that I've had over the years, where those analytics become the focus and the, the basic underpinning of that program, where you, all the things you identify in your risk assessment, you address and you build, but then you follow track and monitor to make sure they're effective in the way they should be. And then you overarch that with a recurring cycle of assessments to
0: adjust and refine. See, that is a data driven compliance program. And
1: that's exactly the way it should work, right? Music
0: to my ears, man.
1: Right. Of course.
0: Let me jump to the next topic because I was intrigued by, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but last month you spoke at an on an ACI panel and you talked about the five things to know before securing buy-in and budgets for data driven compliance, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I'd love to know just real quick, can you recap those five things? And again, you could say pass. I'm putting you on the spot. What were those five things at a high level?
1: No, I mean, I'm happy to respond because I was actually intrigued and very interested when I was asked to do this. I was trying to think, I can't remember ever seeing or attending a panel at a conference or even virtually where this was the discussion. And I was like, wait a minute. I've been asked to do this a lot in my career. had to stand in front of boards or special committees of a board or an audit committee to talk about the need to implement some type of system or tool to use data for, but never been asked to do it this way. So I was like, this is kind of interesting. And I guess the thought process made sense once I understood what ACI was trying to accomplish. It was really a a precursor conference for this upcoming data analytics conference that's coming up at the end of July. Right. And the thought process around it was, in order for you to be able to demonstrate the need for these tools in your organization requires you to have done essentially all the legwork you would need to do to build one in the first place. So the five questions were, what should you anticipate? What types of questions or concerns would the board raise to you or senior management raise to you when you try to tell them that you need budget to do this thing you're asking them to do? So one, what do you anticipate? Two, how do you demonstrate the business need and then what resources that you'll need to secure amidst what you'll almost always get are budget pressures specifically? Then it's about how can you walk through that board or senior management team of the underlying compliance, financial liability risks that may be presented to you, right? And there, it's really important to have very concrete examples, specific risks, hopefully you've identified internally. If you're speaking more anecdotally, it's not going to really resonate uh, with the board. The last two were one then highlighting what risk mitigation efforts or other interdepartmental efficiencies that you might have. And that's, I think, an important point to stop on really quick is that one way to truly get good buy-in organizationally is if you are aligned with other stakeholders within your organization that will benefit from and utilize the same data you're looking to essentially create tools for. Especially so like internal forward. audit. Yeah, I, exactly. I see internal
0: audit and finance and procurement often get behind
1: this. It's a great point. Absolutely. And it's, it's the best way to get... Buy in because one, usually in compliance, you're a cost center. If you're in legal and compliance, you're a cost center. You might be saving the company money ultimately, but nobody likes to hear that because you're not making the money directly. And so, if you can get a department that is helping you to make money, even sales, for example, they then have budgets. They will leverage it. If you can help them in some way better see their own data and help you at the same time better understand it, then it's a win win. And that's what you, would shoot, you should try to do in all cases. And I think the last piece was to be very clear and very able to be able to define your operational strategy for how you're going to roll it out. Very distinct timelines. If you're going to do initial pilots, if you will, communication strategy and the such to make sure they understand you know, what their concerns are, you have a plan in place, you know what resources you need, you know how to talk them through the underlying risks, what specific things you need to address to make sure that plan and that rollout of that plan is considerate of the operational experience of the organization, but also thoughtful in terms of who's involved.
0: Yeah, right on. Right on. All right. Well, we have time for one last question. And I always like to do this for the audience and ask you kind of what advice do you have for legal and compliance professionals listening to make that kind of big impact, whether it's in the second half of 2021 or 2022, what should they be thinking about for advancing their careers, their reputation, and ultimately helping their company improve their compliance program?
1: That's a really good question. It's, it's goal setting time for me too. So maybe this works for me as well. <laughs> I think I would say two specific things. I think the first is one, take on a task or initiative that is well beyond your comfort zone. And we talked about data here. A lot of compliance programs are really trying to run down that path. And a lot of compliance professionals just don't know where to start or feel uncomfortable. The best way to do it is to just to dive in and to make sure you're ready to think about expanding your thought process, your experience and how you would basically change the way you work. And the idea is you got to immerse yourself in it. And I think the second thing I would say sort of dovetails with this is that I recommend that everyone, you know, yourself and myself included, build relationships within the network within legal and compliance. Don't be afraid to reach out to people that you see on panels or colleagues in other companies or friends that work in other organizations, or even if they're consultants for that matter, take the opportunity to learn what they do, how they deal with issues, what tools, what applications they have, and how they've dealt with adversity, dealt with crises, dealt with issues that they didn't know how to address or what problems they had with gathering data or using data. Every ounce of information that you can get makes you that much more dangerous and that much more able to help yourself and your company be better from a compliance perspective.
0: Nice. Well, that is awesome, Brian. I really appreciate the discussion. Thanks for uh, joining me on the pond. And we got to have you back. So appreciate your thoughts and uh, look forward to our continued dialogue. In fact, we'll be on, I don't think we're on the same panel together, but we'll both be presenting at the ACI conference this July. I think it's the 19th and the 20th. So look forward to seeing you on that. I look forward to seeing you there. And thanks again for
1: having me. Appreciate it. I'd love to come back.
0: All right. And thanks everybody for joining us on the pond. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Walden Pond podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review.